going on in the book of Acts. The first one was a theological argument. And we learned how the church handled a theological disagreement. And they handled it wonderfully. They got together. They prayed. They were unified. They sought the scriptures. And what an example for us here today. If there's something we disagree on biblically, hey, let's just get the Bible out. Let's see what it says. Let's search the scriptures together. Let's strive for unity. And how blessed is that when that comes together? Well, the second part of Acts 15 is not a theological argument. It's now a personal argument. And this is part of the beauty of the Bible as it presents the good, the bad, and the ugly all at the same time. It'd be very easy just to skip these passages. It'd be very easy to not even put those passages in the Bible. But yet it presents the early church as humans. And as humans, sometimes we disagree. And sometimes as humans, that disagreement leads to a fight, leads to a contention. So the second part of this message here in Acts 15 is, how do we as believers now handle, not theological disagreements and arguments, personal disagreements and arguments? So this is not a lesson I've been looking forward to teaching because very clearly put, I've said to you many times before, anytime I teach, I have to live it before it or I have to live it after it. This week wasn't too bad. That means something's going to happen starting today, and I don't know what that is yet. But the same for you. As soon as you guys came and you said, Lord, I want to learn of you, and I want to learn how to be the believer you called me to believe, God's going to say, okay, we're going to put this into practice. And so you're going to run into something, and maybe you've already ran into it, or maybe you're going to run into it here coming up where there is going to be an argument, a disagreement. How, as a believer, do you maturely handle these things to not let it go downhill? So with that being said, let's do the smart thing and pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you teach, we listen. Let your spirit guide and direct into all things. Help us be the believers you called us to be to handle these problems, these disputes, these arguments maturely in you. We ask for your blessing upon that, and we ask for your wisdom upon that. In your name, amen. This is going to feel a little bit different than what we normally do on a Sunday. This isn't so much as me teaching. This is us just going through the Bible together and looking at what these verses have to say. So let's set the scene. Verse 36 of Acts 15 says, Then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now, I don't think about this for a second. Paul and Barnabas went on this missionary journey. We just got done with that in Acts 14. It was a two-year trip. So now they're back for a while. They said, hey, let's go back. It's a good idea. So they get ready to take off, and Barnabas says, hey, let's bring John Mark with us again. Now, you got to remember, in the Bible, Barnabas and John Mark are cousins. So Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Cousin John with us. Paul says, I'm not bringing Cousin John with us. He's the guy that jumped ship. You remember that? Now, we've talked about this before, that if Paul was attending your church, you would want a Paul in your church. Theologically sound, he would not back down on the scriptures, and he would be a cornerstone of that church. But would you want Paul to be your best friend? I don't know if Paul's personality was sometimes that warm, that inviting. Paul wasn't going to back down from this. Barnabas wasn't going to back down from this. Verse 39, the contention became so sharp they parted from one another. Now, we could have skipped all this. We could have had verse 36, take out 37, take out 38, 
and take out the first half of 39. And we could have just said, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. But it's in there for a reason. I think this shows us that these men and women that we look back in the book of Acts, they're amazing men and women of God, but they're also men and women with the same nature as you and I. And just as the early church had its ups and downs, we have our ups and downs too. Now, I've heard pastors, I think, sometimes try to water this down a little bit and say, well, maybe this was a good thing and God used this for good because you actually had two groups of people going out. And that's true. But you can't dodge the fact that this was a contention, this was an argument, and dare we say, they split. Now, we know how it ends. Paul and John Mark eventually make amends because later on in the Bible, Paul says, bring John Mark with you. Because he's useful. So they do eventually make peace. But at this moment, this is tough. So this brings us to our first point. This is a very simple point. You're going to be hurt by people. It's just a fact. You will be hurt by people. You will be let down by people. You will be frustrated with people. You will be made angry by people. And I made a list of the people that are going to upset you and hurt you. Your spouse, your kids, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your relatives, your pastor, your co-workers anybody. Isn't it amazing that we almost had this mindset that someone so close to me, my kids, my wife, the pastor, my family, they would never do anything to hurt me. I've realized those are the people you get hurt by the most. They're the ones in your circle most of the time. So our first point is you will be hurt by people. It is going to happen. You will be let down. You will be offended. You will be bothered. It's inevitable. And it amazes me sometimes as adults, we see people that have gone through decades of their life and they don't seem to understand this point yet. And they're almost shocked. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they said that. Judah, our second son, the way he gets hurt more than anything is his feelings. He's tough physically. But if one of his brothers does one thing to him that looks like they slighted him or hurt him, that just completely crushes Judah. He puts his head down, he walks away, and he is so hurt that someone he loves and trusts would hurt him. And I know people like that. We're going to get hurt. The main point of this message is not that you're going to be hurt. That's a fact. Here's the main point of the message. How do you choose to react to that? That's what we have to talk about today. How do you choose to react when you have been hurt, when somebody has said something, when somebody has done something to you? How do you choose to react to that? First things first, we're going to go through lots of verses today. We're not going to turn to every one of them, but I'm just going to give you the passages. Matthew 18 sets the guidelines of how we're supposed to handle this. And the first point you see in Matthew 18 is if you've been hurt or wronged by somebody, is you go to that person and you go to that person alone. Think about how much drama that would cease in your life or in other people's lives is if somebody hurt you, said something, bothered you, that you would go to that person and go to that person alone. You wouldn't bring anybody else into it, just you and them. What do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency sometimes to not go to that person alone. We have a tendency sometimes to talk to five, ten other people to see if we should go to that person alone. We have a tendency sometimes to say, you know what? I'm not going to go to that person. I don't want to make a big deal of it. So I'll just talk to these other people about it and they'll help me pray through it. We do things along that type of line. Or we say something like this. I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to cause issues or problems. So I'm not going to talk to that person. And instead it becomes a bitterness in your soul. And it eats at you. 
Do you realize the first point of how to handle this is such a simple point. Someone has hurt you. Somebody has wronged you. You go to that person and you say, you know what, can we talk about this? Maybe it came across the wrong way. Maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. I don't know, but this is causing a problem and I would like to talk to you about it. Go to them and to them alone. Matthew 18. That point is almost so simple that I sit up here thinking, well, I should probably say more about it. No. Go to them. Go to them alone. What are we supposed to do when we go to them? Well, let's look at the example of Jesus. Luke 23, Jesus hung from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's a great first step, isn't it? Let's have a heart of forgiveness. Let's be like Jesus. And so when somebody hurts us or wrongs us, we can say, I forgive them. Now, it's at this point that people start creating their own verses or they start creating their own escape clause. Because they start saying things along this type of line. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. You don't know how they treated me. You don't know how they wronged me. And really what we're saying is, I'm exempt from forgiving this person because this person has so hurt me, so wronged me, that the Bible, Jesus himself would understand if I choose to hold a grudge on this. That's making up your own scriptures. If Jesus could say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I even had somebody tell me one time, I've been hurt more than what Jesus was hurt. And I'm not trying to pick, but if you want to walk in a victim mentality, there's nothing I can do about that. Some of you may have been raised in the most dysfunctional of dysfunctional homes. Some of you may have some awful people that are in your circle and you don't know what to do with it. But the point is, if Jesus from the cross can say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, you can do the same thing too. Let's not look for exemptions. Let's not look for escape clauses. It's not that I've been so hurt. No, no, no. Christ said we can forgive. Can you go to Ephesians 4, please? Here's the thing about forgiveness, though. I think we misunderstand forgiveness. Ephesians 4. We think of forgiveness as saying it's okay. Forgiveness is not saying what they did is okay. What their words were, what their actions were, were not okay. It was wrong. Forgiveness is, I no longer choose to let that have a power over me. You've got to remember that. See, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, it's not like all of a sudden the world got a free pass. Jesus was saying, I no longer choose to let this have any power over me. When you choose to forgive somebody, you're saying, I no longer allow that person, those words, that situation to have power over me. What they did was still wrong, and they're accountable to God for that. But I choose to no longer let that have power over me. Ephesians says this, verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Look at verse 32. I forgive because Christ forgave me. When I choose to withhold forgiveness towards somebody, what I'm basically saying is this. I have not seen a good enough example in Jesus to say I need to forgive others. Think of everything that Christ has forgiven you for. There is no comparison in any way whatsoever. If I choose to withhold forgiveness for what somebody has done to me, I'm basically saying that what Christ did to me, his forgiveness to me, has not impacted me enough to say I want to forgive other people. That's a huge statement. Jesus' forgiveness was not a good enough example for me to say I forgive other people. Let's just be honest. The things that we get bothered about are usually very small. He or she just makes a little slight comment towards you. 
Maybe you said hi to them in the hallway and they didn't say hi back. You know, maybe you asked them to do something and they, they just didn't do it. Maybe they forgot a birthday. Maybe they forgot Valentine's Day. Maybe they forgot to pick you up. I don't know. It's amazing how these, dare I say, small slights we allow to become big. Now, once again, somebody may be saying here, well, there, this, this wasn't a small slight. This was a pers- purposeful causing harm in my life, maybe emotionally, spiritually, physically, etc. You can still choose to forgive. It's a choice that you make. Or you can choose to let this have power over you. If you choose to let it have power over you, you're harboring unforgiveness, which is going to lead to a root of bitterness, and it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. Here's the thing, though. I've come to the conclusion that some people like harboring unforgiveness. It's a constant fuel that keeps them angry. And some people just like to be angry. And they will replay, redo situations in their mind. We've joked about this out here before. We call them anger fantasies. Where you have this idea of maybe there's a co-worker and you say, okay, when I go into work, they're going to say this. And then when they say this, I'm going to say this. And then I'm going to tell them about this. And it just builds. And, we, and it actually feels good for a moment. Your flesh gets riled up. It's like, yeah, I'm going to take a stand for myself. I'm going to put them in their place. I'm going to tell them all these things. And it's that anger fantasy. Now, does that line up with Scripture? Well, at that point, I don't care. It feels good. Jesus set the example. Ephesians tells us to walk in that example. If we choose not to, we're going to have a root of bitterness that's going to destroy us. Have you ever seen somebody that has had a root of bitterness in their life, it just destroys them. Here's the thing, though. Of all the people I've ever met that harbor unforgiveness or they have that root of bitterness in them, none of them think they do. They have so justified their life and actions that they're okay with how they have done. They have been so hurt, so wronged in their mind that this reaction is considered acceptable. They've convinced themselves of that. Boy, that's a dangerous spot to be. Where are we supposed to be? Can you go to 1 Corinthians 13, please? 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the great chapter on love. Think of all this idea of love. 1 John, God is love. That's how God chose to define himself, as love. Jesus said, you will know you are my disciples by your love. So, what is the definition of love? 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go ahead and start in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believe all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. We were just talking at a men's study a couple Saturdays ago where somebody said, put your name in there where it says love. Verse 4. James suffers long and is kind. Okay, I already failed. Uh, James does not envy. James does not pray itself. Now, can you say that? Or does it sound awkward? <laughs> because when I try to put my name in there, it's like, okay, I, I passed that one, failed that one, passed that one, failed. You know what? I got, I got 7 out of 14. You know, that's not bad. We've got to be careful with those type of things. Especially when it comes to verse 5. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, thinks no evil. That phrase, thinks no evil. Some of your translation says this, keeps no record of being wronged. We keep records of being wronged. And they come out in the, in the best times, don't they? 
There's this argument, there's this fight, and next thing you know, well, I remember months ago when you said this, when you did this, that's not love. Love is not keeping a record of every time someone has hurt you and then storing that into your memory banks to be able to protect yourself. And this is what people say. We're back to our exemption now. We're back to adding verses. Well, the reason I do that is to remember how they hurt me to protect myself again so that way I don't get hurt again. Do you realize love is letting down your defenses and walls and allowing yourself to be hurt all the time? That's exactly what love is. When you put up defenses and say, you've hurt me, you've wronged me, so what will happen is we'll, we'll live in this world together. We won't have animosity necessarily, but I'm going to put some pretty heavy defenses up to never allow myself to get hurt again. You will not find a scripture to back up that fault in any way whatsoever. In fact, I can give you scripture after scripture that shoots down that idea. Can you imagine if Christ would do that to us? You know, James, you've already said you're sorry for that many times. I'll forgive you, but I'm, I'm going to put a little bit of distance now between us on this one. Because every time you sin, you hurt me again. No, that's the beauty of forgiveness. The walls come crashing down. There's a complete, utter openness. And there's a love. So when I look at this, thinks no evil, keeps no record of being wronged, can you say that? Or do you got a little mental checklist in your mind of how they've hurt you and you won't let it go? Forgiveness is not saying what they did was okay. Forgiveness is saying, I choose to let it go to no longer have power over me. Jesus set the example. He asked us to walk in it. If this is the picture of love, the result of not doing this is to harbor unforgiveness, to walk in bitterness, and that will destroy you. And let me reiterate this point. No matter what somebody has said or done to you, there is no exemption clause to say, I've been so hurt, so wrong, that I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to feel this way. That's not true. Christ set the example for you. To put this into practice, if you would turn to Proverbs 15. What I want to do here is to say, okay, this is all good. These are all good points. How, how do we apply this now? I think the book of Proverbs is the best book on just daily applicable, applicable living. So I, I went through Proverbs and ended up getting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine verses. And we're just going to go through them. Once again, we're just going to talk about them. Now, I, I think these are all great refrigerator verses. So I did you guys a favor, and I already typed them up and printed them off for you. Now, I only have one copy of it, so I'm not kidding. They're on the back table. So when you leave today, take these. These are all the verses we're going to go through. So if you miss a couple of them or didn't get it, they're all right here. And I put the topics right on top. Our words and actions, avoiding arguments, maturity, application, it's right here. Take this home. Stick this on your fridge. Let this be something you apply to your life. So let's jump right into this. Proverbs 15. How do we handle these arguments, these fights, these hurt, this pain? Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How simple. Are your words harsh are your words soft? Soft answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stirs up. And how do the harsh words work? Well, generally one person says something and they, they got a little edge to their voice. So then the person responds with a little bit more edge to their voice. Then that person responds with a little bit more edge to their voice. And then what happens in the middle of the argument, you would say, well, I wouldn't be yelling at you if you wouldn't have started it. I wouldn't have raised my voice if you wouldn't have raised... And we have all these silly little excuses. 
I've heard people say things along the line of, well, I have to be loud to get my point across. You don't listen unless I... Soft answer turns away wrath. To be completely honest, to reject that verse is what you're basically saying is the Bible is wrong. Soft answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. Honestly, ask yourself when it comes to your words, are they harsh or soft? With your spouse, with your kids, your co-workers, friends, family, relatives, how are they? How about the next one? Proverbs 16, please. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Proverbs 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. If you want to show me how strong of a man you are, show me how you can control your tongue. That's what the Bible says. A strong man can control his tongue and his temper. Now that goes completely against the world. Because the way you show yourself powerful in the world is, is a couple different ways. Number one is you're able to string together this beautiful array of cuss words. So that way when you get angry and upset, you, you can say things. You can destroy people with words. That shows you're powerful. Or number two, you can show you're powerful because when you get angry, your face can change colors. And veins can pop out of your head. You can show you're powerful because you don't yell, but yet you get this deep, guttural, almost demonic voice. Of like, you will listen to me. You know this? That's how we show we're powerful in the world. Well, there's the world standards and there's the Bible standards. According to the Bible in verse 32, if you're slow to anger, you're better than the mighty. Most powerful man in the world is somebody who can control his temper and control his tongue. That's power. Verse 32, he who rules his spirit is then he who takes the city. You can control your spirit. People say all the time in arguments, well, I couldn't control myself. You got me so worked up, I started saying things like... Excuses. According to the Bible, if you are born again and saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So therefore, if you can control your spirit, you're better than the man that can take a city. Problem is, we don't look at these as traits that we look for, because that's just not the way the world works. We have to change our mindset. A biblical, godly, powerful man or woman controls her tongue, controls her temper, And controls her spirit. That is the goal that we're looking for. Slow to anger. No excuses. They pushed me. They prodded me. They made me. No. You chose to. Let's move next one. Proverbs 17, please. Verse 14. Proverbs 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. That's almost too simple. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop a contention before a quarrel starts. You want to know how, how you stop a fight? Don't have one. You know how frustrating that is? I have this little phrase I like to use. I'll go up to Dawn and I'll say, I don't want to argue, but this is what happens in our marriage. I say, I don't want to argue. She interrupts me and says, well, then don't. First off, you know how frustrating that is. Number two... She's right. I don't argue. Well, then don't. What are you supposed to say back to that? See, this is exactly what verse 14 is saying. Therefore, stop a contention before core starts. I don't want to argue. Well, then don't. See, now we start making exemptions. I don't want to argue, but you got me so worked up. I don't want to argue, but I'm so hurt. No, I don't want to argue. So let's go back to what we said. 
Matthew 18, I'll talk to you one-on-one. Can we pray about it? Can we try to figure it out? I'll forgive you like Jesus. I'll walk in forgiveness. I'll have love. I won't harbor unforgiveness. Then, then don't. And this verse is so simple but so annoying, it's repeated just three chapters later in Proverbs 20, verse 3. The same verse is repeated three chapters later. That's God's way of trying to say, I want this point to come across. Can you imagine if we would take Proverbs 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water, therefore stop at contention before a quarrel starts. Can you imagine if we took that verse, made it like size 82 font, and put it on every room of your house, of your, where you work and your car, you, I don't want to fight. Well, then I just won't. These are verses that work, but we're just not used to doing it in our world system. Our world system is you raise your voice, I raise my voice. Our world system is the only way I can get my point across is by yelling, screaming, hitting, fighting. No, that is not what a biblical man or woman is supposed to do. So now we take these words, which are good. We want soft words, not harsh words. We want to be slow to anger. We don't want to fight. Now let's take some advice. Let's just take some advice that Proverbs has. Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. Here's some just godly advice now. How do you stop a contention before it starts? Verse 13 of Proverbs 18. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. You answer a matter before you hear it. And I say this jokingly, but I've run into people that have added a gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is they can read minds and intentions. And they say things like this. Well, I know why he said it. No, you don't. You may think you know. You may analyze the situation, but you don't know. You're answering a matter before he hears it. You hear it. Now, the thing is, somebody says normally, well, I normally write on these things. You may be right once, twice. You may be right a hundred times. But if you're wrong once, it also shows you can be wrong again. We have a tendency sometimes to get worked up about things, verse 13, before it even happens or before we even know what's really going on. We know why they did it. We know what they're thinking. We know why they said it. My favorite one is, I know what they're talking about. Do you have like super hearing or something like that? You have no idea. We answer a matter before we hear it. If that's what you do, verse 13, the Bible says that's folly and shame. I mean, the Bible's been pretty straightforward. That we got to be careful that we don't jump to conclusions. I think verse 13 of Proverbs 18 can be easily said, don't jump to conclusions. Here's the problem. When I run into people like that, you can't change their mind. They are so convinced what people are saying or doing behind the scenes. It's folly. It's shame. Next one, Proverbs 26, please. One more tidbit of advice on how to stop a contention before it starts, to stop a quarrel. We just learned in Proverbs 18, we don't know people's heart. We don't know people's motives. We may have a good guess, but we don't know. Proverbs 26, verse 17. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. Now think about that. How many times do we get in fight and arguments because we butt into other people's business? Now, this is what normally happens. Someone comes up and says, I, it's not that I try to butt into other people's business, but people always come to me. And why do they always come to you? I don't know why they always come to you. Well, they always come to you because you're always willing to butt into other people's business. 
Can you imagine if someone would come to you with a problem and you would just say, sorry, I'm not going to talk about that. I'll just pray for you. I doubt they would come back to you again. But yet, if they keep coming to you, it's because you keep on doing it. And, and, and I don't want to analyze somebody because we just read the verse about don't analyzing somebody. But some people live off drama. They just, they just live off of it. And so this coworker is upset, this family member is upset, and they get themselves into it. Now, they may try to say, well, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. I'm trying to make peace. You know what sometimes the best advice is? Hey, Matthew 18 says if you're upset at them, you need to go talk to them alone. And by you and I having a conversation about why you're upset with them and you're not talking to them is actually wrong and sinful, and I don't want to do that. That would end a conversation pretty quick. But instead, we do things like this. Well, I'm just helping them talk through it. I'm just being an ear for them to vent. I'm just being there to help them pray. The best advice I can give you is if you're that upset at them, is don't talk to me about it. Go to them. Go to them. Because me getting involved, I'm taking a dog by the ears. That's not a good thing. But yet we do these things, and then we wonder why. Here's the thing. Just like we mentioned earlier, sometimes those people that have a tendency to jump to conclusions don't realize they jump to conclusions. We have people that have a tendency to have these traits. They don't realize they butt into other people's business. They just don't. Let the Lord lead here and just really stop and say, am I supposed to be in this? If I'm not supposed to be in this, the best thing I could do is back out, tell you I'm praying, and point you to talking to, talk to each other, just like Matthew 18 says. That's the best advice I could give you. How are we supposed to handle this? What are the examples now of maturity? Two verses on this, and we got one more, then we're done. Jump back to Proverbs 19. Our first three verses were about our words and our actions. Our next two verses were sound advice. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't meddle in other people's business we got two verses here on the sign of a mature believer. Proverbs 19, verse 11. This is the sign of a mature believer. Proverbs 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. A mature believer is slow to anger. Please do note at this point, anger in and of itself is not a sin. It's what you do when you're angry that dictates whether it's a sin or not. You can have righteous anger. You can be bothered, upset by something. But you've got to be careful. Your righteous anger does not become sinful anger of words and actions that are not biblically appropriate. So you will get upset. But what do you do when you are upset? So a mature man is slow to anger. And look at verse 11. His glory is to overlook a transgression. Simply put, let things go. They didn't say hi to you. Let it go. They didn't really seem like they want to talk to you. Let it go. You wanted to be involved in it, they didn't want you. Let it go. Maturity is letting these things go. But so often we see people not overlooking a transgression. And, and once again, you may be sitting here thinking, you don't know what they did to me. An exemption clause. I don't have to overlook that because their actions were so hurtful, so wrong. Jesus set the example. It'd be interesting to find something to say, yep, that one is so awful. Don't overlook that one. Don't forgive that one. No. Maturity is slow to anger, letting it go. One more verse about maturity before I close up. Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, verse 11.
Proverbs 29, verse 11 says, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. This is a tough one. Because i got to be honest, I fall into this one. Venting all your feelings. Saying things you shouldn't say. Wisdom, maturity is holding them back. Self-control. This is where we start making excuses. Things along the type of line of, I I didn't want to yell and scream, but you made me. (laughs) I didn't want to get worked up, but you kept pushing me. No, you're venting all your feelings. Or sometimes we try to act mature. Well, there's things I want to say, but I'm just not going to say it. Now, come on. So you want to make sure it's publicly known you're bothered and upset, but you don't want to say anything. So you'll vent a frustration, but yet you're a super mature believer because you're not saying everything. A fool vents also, and a wise man holds them back. You're bothered by something. It's eating at you. Instead of going and venting all your feelings and being emotional and saying things you regret, go spend that time in prayer and fasting. Ask the Lord to help you through it. Ask the Lord to work through it. Don't talk to anybody else about it. This goes back to our first point, between you and them alone. By you saying, hey, would you pray for me? I'm really worked up over what so-and-so did. Well, then you need to go talk to them. And sometimes this is what I hear. I hear people say, well, if I just talk about it, I feel better. That may be true, but that's a temporary band-aid to a problem that's underneath the skin. Because if you're not really dealing with it spiritually or dealing with that person, just because you talk through it, and you didn't even talk to the person, you didn't deal with it, that issue is still going to be there. Instead of venting all your feelings, let the Lord guide and direct your words. Are your words coming out harsh or are they coming out soft? Are you being slow to anger? Are you stopping the fight before it happens? I mean, go back to our passage in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Is there clamor, evil speaking, and malice? Or is there forgiveness and tenderheartedness? We've got to be careful. One of the fruits of the Spirit, as we mentioned before, is self-control. If you can't control your feelings and emotions, the Bible says you're a fool. A wise man holds them back. A mature man is able to control those words and emotions in the Lord. Does it take work? You bet it does. Because emotions are a powerful thing. And once we open up those emotions, there is that brief moment of it feels good. Followed by, I shouldn't have said that. Self-control. Here's our final point that we're going to make. Proverbs 24, please. Here's the application. How do we then take all this and do it? It's one thing to have all these verses. It's one thing to read them. It's one thing to know it. You know, we mentioned uh, last week uh, on Sunday that as a church, during the week, we're going to go through Psalm 119. And we're putting it on the church Facebook page. It's also on the church website. We just put a new one up yesterday, our second study in Psalm 119. And one of the points that came out of that second study in Psalm 119, it's not just reading Scripture. It's memorizing Scripture. It's contemplating Scripture. It's meditating on it. You know, a lot of us can read a verse, nothing changes. Chew on it. Contemplate. Meditate on it. And I encourage you, either through the church website or get on the church Facebook page, go through the study with us during the week here because it's the power of God's Word in our life. So we can read all these verses. How do we apply it? Well, Proverbs 24 says what we're supposed to do. Proverbs 24, verse 3. Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Look at that. We need wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. How is your house built? Wisdom. How is it established? Understanding. How are the rooms filled? Knowledge. 
three wonderful traits. Your spiritual house. How is your spiritual house? We've been talking a lot out here at church about where the Lord is leading us. We've been praying about adding on. We're running out of space in certain areas, etc. And the Lord really laid something on my heart a couple weeks ago as we keep putting all this attention on the physical house. How's the spiritual house? Maybe that should be our main focus. And I found this great devotional, and I, and I printed it out and gave it to the staff and some of the other leadership out here and said, let's just really focus on our spiritual house. So I'm asking you, how's your house? I can drive by your house and see a well-manicured lawn and landscaping, and it looks great. I don't care. How's your spiritual house? Is your spiritual house being built up by wisdom? Is it being established by understanding? And is the rooms filled with all knowledge? That's what matters. We talk about that verse being in size uh, 72 font in every room. Let's make this one about 140 font and put this everywhere. That idea of, I want our house. If you are married, how's your spiritual house in your marriage? If you have kids, how's your spiritual house with your children? How's your spiritual house with your co-workers? How's your spiritual house with friends, families, relatives? Is it being built up, understanding, established, knowledge, etc.? How do we do all that? Because that's a pretty tough task. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Isn't it nice that the Lord makes it simple? You don't need to turn there. Our last verse, Proverbs 2, 6. Proverbs 2, 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. So, the Lord gives you wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So, the three traits you need to build up your house, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, Proverbs 2, verse 6, say they all come from the Lord. You don't have to go out and find it. It's all bundled together in one nice package, and it comes through the Lord. Which, doesn't that just reiterate everything we always say? If you seek first the kingdom of God and get your relationship with Christ first, doesn't everything else fall into place? But yet, when we have a tendency sometimes to not put Christ first, we wonder why things are out of order. I mean, didn't Joshua just tell us thousands of years ago, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? And then if the house isn't working right, and we wonder why it's not, are we really serving the Lord as a house? I mean, is that the same for a church? If the church is not seeing disciples made and making disciples, don't we need to stop and say, well, what's going on? It's the spiritual house. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Proverbs 2, verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. I encourage you, before you leave, grab a copy of those verses. Don't just go home and stick them on the fridge and say, oh, everything's going to be wonderful. Pray over it. Contemplate it. Meditate on it. Chew on it. Let the Lord lead you. Because our words, our mouth is what determines what type of man or woman we are. The Bible, once again, makes it abundantly clear. A mature man or woman will control their tongue and can control their temper. It is inevitable. Acts 15. You will be offended by somebody. You will be bothered by things. And it's also inevitable. You will offend somebody. And you will bother somebody. How can we learn from this to say, when it does happen, that we want to handle this in a mature, godly response? and not the way the world does. I hope you will pray over that and seek the Lord on that in all ways and all things. Marvin, come forward here for the final song.